Welcome to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Today, we are doing the second part of our Q&A series. I have here in my so-called studio, Smokey the Magnificent, my excellent wife. Say hello, Smokey. Hello, Smokey. Again. Today's Q&A is on mission, submission, and rulership in marriage. We had many questions from readers who wanted to know about various aspects of what rulership looks like in marriage, what submitting looks like, how we resolve conflicts, and so we are going to do an in-depth episode on mission, submission, and rulership in marriage. Okay, Smokey, what is our first question? What does receiving and submitting to a husband's rulership mean and look like within marriage? Perhaps some examples within the tenant marriage. The first thing that I want to emphasize is that submission is a compound word. Now, this is a folk etymology. It's not actually the real etymology of the word submission, but it angles in on an important truth, which is that submission requires a mission to be sub, to be under. So it's helpful to think of submission as being under a mission. This is what both the service of husband and wife are oriented toward. Service via rulership and service via helping. In principle, It's not really about the husband asserting himself over the wife, it's about the husband being responsible to find the best way to achieve the mission, and the wife accepting and supporting him in that. A wife following her husband when she disagrees is a test case for submission, but it's not the definition of submission that many people seem to think that it is. I think a lot of young complementarian couples, especially those who have been brought up in a similar culture with similar beliefs, tend to think that submission is all about the wife obeying when the husband tells her to do something she doesn't want to do. And because they're in love, and they agree on most things, and they talk everything over incessantly the way young in love people do, they think, well, of course I believe in submission in theory, but in reality it will never apply to us. We're two in sync and we discuss everything, and my husband values my opinion, so it's not going to be an issue. It's really only less compatible couples that will have to worry about it. And then if one day he does ask her to do something she doesn't want to do, she's likely to be quite outraged because she thought they had an understanding and didn't have that kind of marriage. And the unspoken idea was we both pay lip service to gender roles, but we're more evolved than that. And maybe she just needs to keep explaining her position until he agrees. Which can leave both of them feeling frustrated because he feels disrespected and she feels unheard. And for both of them, the illusion of romantic simpatico is shattered And the disagreement can kind of shock the marriage in general out of proportion to the importance of the decision itself. And it can especially leave her feeling like submission is really a kind of subjugation or slavery. But this doesn't reflect reality so much as her own bad expectations. The submission of a wife is not like the subjugation of a slave. She doesn't have to do what she's told because she has no choice. Scripture never indicates that a man can force his wife to submit, which is why it needs to exhort wives to submit, why it reminds them that doing so is a virtue. If a man really can't force you to do something, it's not praiseworthy for you to submit. Imagine thinking that you were virtuous to hand over your wallet to a mugger, for instance. It wasn't virtuous. You just didn't have a choice. But submission is virtuous. Which also illustrates a very critical point, which is that submission is not a result of the fall. Eve was literally created for submission, that is to work in service to the mission. God looked at the task of having dominion over the world and said, Adam can't do this alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. We talked today about something being a two-man job, but this was a one-man, one-woman job. Eve was not created to keep Adam company, nor was she created as a sex doll. She was created because the mission couldn't be done without her. 
God gives the mission of dominion to both Adam and Eve in the creation mandate. In Genesis 128, he very clearly says, God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. I keep seeing critics of our book say that we elide this point, but in fact we explicitly uphold it. Wifely submission does not exist in a vacuum. It exists in a context of husbandly submission to God. 1 Corinthians 11.3 I wish you to know that the Christ is the head of every man, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The man is not a ruler unto himself, in other words. He is a son of God. He submits to the mission of God. And this is the context in which the woman submits to him. They are both submitting to God on a mutual mission. The woman submits to the mission by submitting herself to the man as his helper in his own submission to God. Incidentally, it always amuses me when people find this concept of Eve as the helper insulting and sexist. Because can you imagine if it was the other way around? Like if God made Eve first and then said, oh, she can't do this alone, she needs a man. That would not go down well either. (laughs) So far we've been speaking in terms of archetypes, here's how it applies in principle through the creation pattern of Adam and Eve and their mission in the creation mandate. But what about for us? How do we apply this? When the creation mandate is disseminated through millions of Christian families, what does that mission look like for each of them? It it can't be exactly the same, we aren't clones. So how does each family contribute to the mission of God, to the mandate of carrying God's rulership into the earth? They specialize. That's actually the definition of civilization, is specialized jobs, rather than everybody doing everything on a subsistence basis. Right. So some men might rule the earth and subdue it primarily through their jobs, building a city or fixing air conditioners. And some might rule the earth and subdue it through things that aren't jobs, like teaching kids wilderness survival skills, or writing plays, or breeding better chrysanthemums. And their wives, directly or indirectly, will support those missions. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because obviously not all men and women in the world are believers, yet because of common grace, there is still a sense in which they fulfill the creation mandate. Not always, of course, and not perfectly. Even Christians don't do it perfectly. But God made men to lead, God made women to support them. Both sexes fail, and that is why we have men who refuse to lead, or who lead tyrannically, or who lead in the wrong direction. And it's why we have women who refuse to submit, or who submit by being passive and useless. But at the same time, common grace means that the original design does shine through. Not all men are wimps or tyrants. Not all women are harpies or doormats. Most men, by the grace of God, even if they're unsaved, have a natural desire to protect and provide and build for their families. And most women have a natural desire to support their husbands. You see this all the time in real life. Women will quit their jobs and travel across the country because their husband got a promotion. They'll turn up every Saturday at the track to cheer him while he races. They'll take the kids and let him sleep in after he had a long night shift. Uh, They'll support him. Feminists would have you believe that this is akin to slavery, and it's a symptom of women undervaluing themselves. In reality, it is women being the glory of man, thanks to God's common grace keeping the world working. Yeah, you really can't escape it. There's that that movie cliche of the hero's sort of bland, supportive wife or girlfriend character, who only sort of shows up to hug her husband and say, well done, honey. And feminists hate this. And they're kind of right in that being a supportive wife doesn't have to make you bland and boring. That's just bad writing. But it is comforting that it's true enough to be a cliché that a supportive wife helps a man with his mission and helps give him the drive to succeed. And when it's done well, um, you get delightful, vibrant characters like Elizabeth Schuyler in Hamilton or Mrs. Croft in Persuasion. Or on the darker flip side, you get Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. So loyalty can actually be a really interesting trait. So if you're a woman and you're supporting your husband cheerfully in his mission, are you being a submissive wife? In a way, yes. But obviously not all women everywhere over the world who support their husbands are biblically submissive. It's a common grace thing, like we said. 
And another element of common grace is that the system tends to have some very obvious practical benefits. God's systems are designed to work. So, for instance, uh, men earn more, so it makes sense for a wife to support her husband in his job. He gets a raise, they get a nice house, everyone's happy. Or when a husband's pursuing his dream, instead of working in some dead-end grind, he's usually a happier, nicer person to be around. So, practical benefits. But where the rubber hits the road is when your husband wants you to submit to a mission that doesn't have those practical benefits. That's when it's really important to have been practicing submission consciously, not just automatically. Because if it isn't a habit, this will pull you up short. And... The mission of a Christian man is very likely to make life harder for his wife in some significant ways. Because God doesn't promise Christians an easy time, he kind of promises the opposite. Hmm. Christian men are to be soldiers for the faith, and the life of a soldier's wife is never easy. So he might want you to sell your house and go be missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Or possibly, you always wanted to sell your house and go be a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and now your husband suddenly decides he wants to stay in the US to look after his aging mother. That might actually be even harder. Or... Your husband might get into the whole patriarchy movement and start a men's ministry and write a book, and you might get kicked out of your church. Exactly. So for me, it took a while to come around to the mission of it's good to be a man. I didn't want Lon to choose that mission. The world of patriarchy and men's rights has some pretty dark and ugly elements, and I was like, you're interested in all sorts of theological topics. You know, Do you have to choose this one, which is so messy and political and ripe for misunderstanding and attracting weirdos? Couldn't you pick a focus that doesn't get you hated, like Old Testament word study, something kind of abstract and technical? But Non knew that's where the fight was, and by the grace of God, he stuck to his guns. He didn't orient his mission according to my nerves or the family's comfort. And it did cost us. Um, As many of you know, we lost friends. We lost family to some extent. We lost the church I'd been attending since I was six years old, where we were baptized and married. But the ministry has proven to be a huge blessing to us as well as others. And I, I mean, I wish I'd been more wholeheartedly supportive from the start. And I'm tremendously grateful that Non didn't listen to me and opt out in favour of an easy, safe mission. So to get back to the question, what does submission look like in our marriage? Well, what does mission look like in our marriage? In our book, we talk about how a mission is basically your best effort to exercise dominion over what God has given you for his glory using the gifts he's provided. So in some ways, it's kind of a misnomer to speak of a mission, because how you do this can change over time and has changed over time for us. But whatever we're working on, it's always ordered around some key principles. Yeah, these are principles we sat down and worked out together, and we have them written down and check on them from time to time. So you want to read them out? Firstly, all of our goals are in pursuit of what we call the tenant legacy, which is to have us be known for living well because we order our ways to match God's ways, regardless of the cost or the profit. And living well doesn't mean being well off. It means having lives worthy of admiration. Secondly, we take as our model King Jotham, of whom we know very little in scripture, except that he became mighty because he ordered his ways before Yahweh his God, 2 Chronicles 27.6. Thirdly, our mission is fundamentally in service to God. We serve God first, then each other second, and whomever God places in our lives third, And when we serve others, we do it especially through firstly teaching, which is helping others to live well with what I call high leverage instruction, meaning instruction which is not just sound geared towards achieving practical results quickly. And secondly, through hospitality, especially making people's lives better with food, which is your talent, Smokey, but really being generous with people as we're able and using what God has given us to show them kindness. So for me, submission can often look like supporting Non and his teaching by helping to edit a book taking on more household tasks so he has time to write, being reconciled to spending some evenings alone when he has a deadline, 
doing most of the veggie gardening because he doesn't have the time or inclination to research that. Basically supporting him in the good and bad of the mission because I don't want to have to face God one day and answer for the fruit Non couldn't produce because of me. And here's an interesting thought for all those people who think I'm some kind of hyper-patriarchalist who's only interested in wifely submission. Oh, yes. For me, a lot of the hardest part of faithfully executing on our mission is actually providing what Smokey needs for the hospitality side. This is something that she's much more skilled at and passionate about than I am, and I completely support it, or it wouldn't be part of our mission, and in fact I think hospitality undergirds teaching, which is where the majority of my focus is, but hospitality is not my natural wheelhouse. So I have to live in repentance of that and submit myself to God in order to be able to lead well and to be a husband who Smokey can submit to. I have to ensure that things like building an outdoor kitchen area actually happen, that maintaining and improving the house continues apace rather than stagnating. These are hard for me, but they're also fundamental to our mission. It's easy to be a good ruler of your house when you're doing the stuff that comes naturally, like teaching in my case. But a good ruler doesn't just do the stuff that comes naturally, he gets the mission done. And there's always at least a few things in the mission that are a grind that he doesn't want to think about that he wishes would go away, but which he has to submit to God in doing anyway. From my perspective, in terms of wifely submission, it's only having practiced being on mission together that more mundane off-mission submission seems less burdensome. Right, because not everything that happens in a household is explicitly on mission. Yeah. There's certainly stuff where I say, do this, and you're like, yes, for the cause. But then there's stuff where it's just the day-to-day give and take of living together and decisions about what to do that have nothing directly to do with the mission. They're kind of mission once removed, just household stuff rather than mission stuff. For example? Going to see the puppies. Okay, yep. Someone asked for an example of submission within disagreement in our marriage, and that was literally the only recent thing I could think of. And it was very much not a big deal. We'd been out with my family for a few hours. Non had had a very long week. My mother suggested we go to visit a friend's puppies, which I would have liked to do, but Non wasn't up to it. So I said okay. It was as simple as that. And on the way home, you were like, sorry, I wasn't up to it. I know you would have liked to see them. And I appreciated that you checked in with me and were aware of my perspective, even if you had to override my wishes that time. Now, if every act of rulership is that kind of thing, making decisions about what you're going to do day to day, it ends up feeling like a petty personality conflict, which is very difficult to submit to, because why should the husband always have his way? There's literally no reason that he should always get his way just on preference-based decisions, even though technically he has that power. And if that's what's happening, and it's never tied to a larger goal, then it's going to tank your marriage. But if you know that small decisions like this are built on a foundation of mutual work towards a larger mission, work that has grown you together so that you're spiritually manifesting the one flesh pattern, then these kinds of issues essentially disappear. And as well, while it's true that a man's mission may put his family through suffering and even danger to some extent, his mission should also be shaped by them to some degree. For example, a man whose wife is in a wheelchair might need to alter his mission from something that involves a lot of mountain climbing. A man's mission should involve, if at all possible, encouraging his wife's and his children's flourishing, I use the word advisedly, the Bible would say shalom, peace, prosperity. A mission shouldn't be so single-mindedly military in focus that it precludes the flowering of talents. One thing that has characterised our marriage, and which I'm very grateful for, is that Non has always actively encouraged me to do kind of pointless things, unnecessary things like watercolour painting, writing, sewing, woodcarving, music. His idea of mission hasn't been to squash my personality down, because he understands that stewardship of a wife is something like stewardship of the earth. You want it to be thriving and flourishing and productive, not this bleak utilitarian monocrop. Again, this is one of those bizarre red pill tropes. They literally treat wives like beasts of burden, instead of like helps that are meat to them. Meat means fit for, 
If you have a wife, then what are you doing if you don't let her help you and refine your mission and if you don't take into account her gifts and interests? Like, why did you marry her? Hopefully not just for her looks. And I'm not downplaying the importance of physical attraction, because sex is integral to the creation mandate, being fruitful, multiplying. You should marry the highest quality woman you can looks-wise and everything else-wise. But marrying a trophy wife is just starting off with failure, because a trophy wife isn't a wife. She's just a very fancy and probably very expensive decoration. When God brought the animals to Adam, and none of them were meat to him, and then he made Eve, the point is not that he was making another animal that was the right shape to have sex with. There's also the stereotype that a submissive wife is defined not by comparative, but by actual weakness. A sort of a Victorian, you know, fainting flower who's only fit for flower arranging and delicately pouring tea. But again, that's biblically absurd. Men are significantly stronger than women, but it's strong and stronger. It's not strong and weak. Biblical women weren't weak. Adam was a gardener. So what good would a frail, delicate, nervous woman have been to him? Biblical women were tough. They were shepherdesses. They walked miles and miles through the desert. They carried huge jugs of water. The fact is that both men and women today are, in general, far weaker than they used to be. And I think this is true both intellectually and physically, but of course it's much easier to prove physically, as demonstrated by grip strength, which is a very reliable proxy for many other kinds of physical strength. So even just in 1985, which is not that long ago, men aged 20 to 24 had an average right-handed grip of 121 pounds, which is 55 kilos in normal world measurements. Today, men that age have grips of only 101 pounds or 46 kilos. So they've lost 9 kilograms of grip strength in the last 45 years. Women aged 20 to 24 also lost grip strength from 70 to 60 pounds of force. There's also a very interesting article in How Stuff Works on whether prehistoric women were stronger than today's female athletes, and they conclude that the average woman of prehistoric times, at least the ones that they were looking at the skeletons of, was between 9 and 16% stronger in her arms than an elite-level Olympic rower. That was to do with grain grinding, wasn't it? Mm, that was their theory. Yeah. I love the story about the fishermen's wives in Scotland. Part of their submissive wifely duties included carrying their husbands out to the boats on their backs because the men, if they got wet socks, would you know die of pneumonia. That is submission with a backbone, <laughs> literally. So depending on the mission, submission might look pretty hardcore. It might involve driving tractors, or extracting bullets from child soldiers in a war zone, or helping run a Fortune 500 company. Hard, challenging, real, physical and intellectual work are within the purview of submission. It's interesting that this idea of a wife helping her husband in his mission is so foreign to us today, because throughout history it was a very obvious fact of human existence. You married the baker, you were the baker's wife, that's what you did, that shaped your days. Where you lived, what you wore, if and when you could take holidays. If you didn't want to spend your life covered in flour and getting up at 4am to put the bread on, you wouldn't marry the baker. It's actually portrayed very well in, weirdly enough, Into the Woods, uh, where we see the baker's wife, and that's her credited title, she doesn't have a personal name, she's the baker's wife, working alongside her husband in the bakery. She would never have considered herself the baker, that was her husband, but she was right in there with him, intimately involved with serving the customers and doing all the day-to-day tasks. And that was the norm for most of history, until the Industrial Revolution mostly destroyed the household as a place of production. Nowadays, we have the remnants of that in a few professions. Uh, The first lady is a job title. It has expectations which are far beyond being married to the president. Pastors' wives have certain expectations, some fair, uh, some wildly unreasonable. Military wives have this kind of honorary, almost in the military status, because it's recognized that their role is extremely hard. But for most couples... 
the wife doesn't have any kind of defined role related to her husband's work. So he'll go to work, he'll come home, and in between it won't make a terribly material difference to her if he's being a roofer or an accountant or a guidance counsellor. Which actually leads us to another important question which we were asked. What does it look like to have a family vision or mission in a context where the dad's primary work is outside the home and disconnected from the household? I think in that kind of situation, it can be harder to feel like you're working together for the mission than if you have some kind of idyllic work-from-home, homestead-type dream. It's long-distance partnering. But firstly, a woman might simply be supporting her husband by being a homemaker and a mother, and that's absolutely fine. And secondly, a mission is more than just a job. A man should have goals beyond just getting through the work week. We actually need to circle back around to what a mission is, or maybe more importantly, what the point of it is in the first place. Something we talk about in our book is how men tend to assume that their mission has to be something epic, and also something very spiritual. But Adam wasn't given an epic spiritual mission, he was told to keep the garden. Keeping the garden would have led to greater things, and that is the normal biblical pattern. Being faithful in small things means God will give you charge over more. But you don't start with the big stuff, you start small. You steward what you have with the gifts God gave you. Exercising dominion is often very mundane. It isn't something that gains you celebrity. One of the problems with me even talking about this is the paradox that people listening are likely to compare their missions to mine or Michael's, or someone else whose mission is explicitly theological. Well, I haven't written a book or founded a church, I just build chairs. But that's not how God thinks. God judges your use of what he gave you, not what he gave anyone else. Building beautiful solid chairs for the glory of God is a worthy mission. But there is a deeper angle to mission as well, which is that whether you're building chairs or writing books, the thing that you're ultimately doing is not for the sake of the chairs or for the sake of the books. It is for the sake of your household. And the thing that I keep strongly in mind when I think about my mission is that when I face God on the final day and have to give an account for my work, the number of books I've written isn't ultimately going to be the question that he's most interested in. What he's going to be interested in is how I raised my sons and my daughters as well as how I was invested in the lives of other men who I was able to help. How did I, in other words, build his kingdom? Because his kingdom is comprised of people. This is what I was getting at with the point of a mission. What I've observed is that both men and women tend to think that a mission exists for its own sake almost, but exercising dominion isn't done for its own sake. Man doesn't go out and subdue the world and build cities and invent cars and write books and whatever else just for the sake of it. Not that those things aren't worthy in their own right, but they serve a higher end. The dominion mandate starts with be fruitful and multiply. That isn't just for the purpose of subduing the world. It's not like just for make more labor. It's a filling it. The purpose of the dominion mandate is to extend God's image into the whole world, which is done by having children, by forming homes that reflect God's loving character. First Corinthians describes the woman as the glory of man, because everything the man does, in a sense, is ultimately for her. Now, I don't mean this in the sense of blue pill woman worship. I mean in the sense that everything he does in subduing the world outside is to provide the space and the resources for her to finish the work inside, both inside the home and even inside her own body. We were listening to a podcast the other day about the mail-order brides of the early days of the USA. So you had all these men immigrating to the US to make money, often to find gold. But the problem was that after a few years they'd made their money, and because they hadn't brought women with them, they just turned around and came back to England to get married. You can't found a colony that way. You need men who want to build lasting, durable cities and infrastructure and culture. And the powers that be eventually figured that out. So they provided these great financial and political incentives for women to go over there and get husbands. And it wasn't just about population increase, it was about finding something worth fighting for and building for. 
Basically, men make money and women make babies, and if you think that this is demeaning to women, you have missed the whole point of creation. It is people, not stuff, that eternally matter. It is people, not places, that are the essence and locus and reason for God's kingdom. So it is people that your mission should be oriented toward, however it looks, serving and building up people into the image of Christ for the sake of his glory, starting with your own household. Okay, last question. Does a wife's respect need to be earned, or something owed at marriage? Both? A practical, simple principle for answering difficult questions like this is to flip the genders. Does a husband's love for his wife need to be earned by the wife, or is it owed at marriage? There's a symmetry between the commands of scripture. Wives fear your husbands, husbands love your wives. These are commands, which means that they are duties, things that we really are able to do and really must do. Now, just because they're duties doesn't mean that it's easy. It also doesn't mean that you have no obligation to help each other do them. If you want your wife to respect you, work hard to become a man who is easy to respect. If you want your husband to love you, work hard to become a woman who is easy to love. Much of the trouble with many marriages is that both parties feel entitled to love or respect because scripture says they are, but neither party is willing to work at actually being lovable or respectable. Incidentally, meditating on this will help you to approach an accurate understanding of what scripture talks about when it speaks of mutual submission. Put it this way, it is theoretically possible, by God's grace, for a wife to respect a consistently unworthy husband, and for a husband to love a consistently unlovely wife. But it isn't your job to push your spouse past the limits of human psychology and human endurance on the slim possibility that he or she is this shining one in a thousand saint. That's kind of psychotic. And there's nothing more likely to make your wife despise you than stomping your foot and saying, respect me, you have to respect me, it's in the book, without any attempt at worthiness. Same with love. If you have to demand them, there's a problem, and it could be with you. To tie this back to what we were talking about earlier, another way of asking this question is, does a wife have to practice submission when there is no mission? Exactly. And just asking that question makes obvious how hard that's going to be. If a man is just drifting along selfishly without any purpose in the world, and all he means by submission is get me a beer and do all the things I don't want to do, that's a very messed up framework. Now, this is probably the point where the husband and wife need to be given pretty different advice, because the wife doesn't need to be told your husband's a loser so you don't need to submit. A, she already knows he's a loser. And B, her submission is ultimately not about him at all, it's about obedience to God. So this is where an older woman, a Titus II woman, would want to help her and walk her through it and look for ways where she can legitimately respect her husband and remind her to respect the office even if she can't respect the man and so on. Again, like we said before, women are strong. I've seen women make a beautiful thing of hard marriages, and they'll be eternally honoured for their holiness. And in the meantime, with a husband in a scenario like this, other men, preferably older men, but maybe his peers, need to slap him upside the head a bit with the reality of what he's doing. They need to make him accountable and model a better way for him, and maybe give him a book so that he understands that it's good to be a man, and this, <laughs> is, this is the way that you're supposed to be a man. This is how to be a good man for God. And just because somebody will inevitably bring this up, we're not talking about abuse, or to clarify, because abuse is kind of a weasel word, we're not talking about domestic violence. We're talking about a husband who's maybe a lazy jerk, not one who's an actual danger to his wife. If your husband is a danger to you, call the police. One analogy that might help in terms of the importance of mission is running a business. And this is actually a very good analogy in a way, because the analogy which we're giving is actually too weak. You might think a, a business is greater than a marriage, but actually a business is less than a marriage. A business is an emaciated household. 
So if you're running a business solo and you decide to take on a business partner, maybe you're the CEO, you decide to take on a CFO, it would be insane for you to hire someone talented and capable and then micromanage the heck out of him, supervising every little task that he has. Because not only would that be insulting and counterproductive to him, but it would ultimately mean that you would get less work done yourself and he would not have the freedom to do the work properly in the way that he knows best. But it would also be insane for you to hire him and not to bother to tell him what the company was about at all. Yeah, like imagine if you turned up on the first day and you smiled benignly and said, okay, this is great, we're going to be a great company. And he was like, yes, okay, what is it we do exactly? And you just looked puzzled and said, we're a company, you're my employee, I think you're great. And then day after day, month after month, that was all the information you gave him. Oh, don't worry about it, I like our company, you're great. And you know, maybe you'd praise him for doing a great job, or sometimes you'd be slightly annoyed at him for not doing something else, but you never actually let him know whether you were a publishing house, or a software company, or a purveyor of fine wines. And worse than that, he wouldn't even know how well the company was doing, or if you were planning to relocate, or take on a bunch of junior staff. Um, for the purposes of the analogy, let me just make it clear that by junior staff I mean having children, not like acquiring polygamous underage wives. <laughs> Think about what kind of effect this would have on this poor CFO's morale. Left to himself, he might spend all day playing Minesweeper, or he might try to glean what you wanted of him the best that he could and muddle along. Or if he was a really gung-ho type, he might decide to use the freedom of his situation to start a business of his own on your premises. And it's very possible he might start looking around for another job, one that had a job description. What he would not do is advance and expand and benefit your business the way he could if you gave him a clear idea of what the company was about and enough direction to help you achieve your goals. Nor would he give you any kind of companionship and support in your role, because he just couldn't. He'd also be inclined to wonder in this scenario why you hired him at all. And if he thought you hired him just because you liked him, he might not feel too secure in his job, because what happens if you stop liking him? He certainly wouldn't feel valued if you spent all day every day locked up in your office running the business without his input or help. It would be pretty insulting. Now, obviously, again, this analogy isn't perfect. A household is not a business, a covenant is not a contract, but the reason that the analogy fails is not because it's too strong, but because it's too weak. You can fire an employee if he proves to be incompetent. You can't divorce your wife if she turns out to be a bad helper, or your husband if he turns out to be a bad provider or leader. But it's a useful analogy, because recent history has shown that marriages based on feelings, on liking each other, these sentimental households, tend to fall apart. We've talked in an article on our website called Who Does the Dishes about a household built on sentiment and the way that it's not a real household, that we have households in the modern day which are fundamentally mismatched to the biblical pattern of what a household is supposed to be. So when you evaluate a potential wife, try to imagine her helping with your mission. Would you work well together? Would she be a help or a hindrance? Would she be happy? And when you evaluate a potential husband, if he has a mission, ask yourself if you're happy to join him in that mission and accept whatever it entails. Is he in a field of work that involves a lot of travelling, or night shifts, or financial instability? Will you be constantly resentful of the work or the mission he's chosen to do, or are you excited to help out? And ideally when you're dating or courting or whatever you do, put yourselves in some situations where you have to work together build something together, learn something new together, see how the other person gives or takes commands and criticism and advice, see if he can cope if she's better at something than he is, see if you end up bickering. And if you're already married, maybe spend some time thinking together about what we've said in this podcast. And if you have any further questions, you know where to find us. We're on Facebook, we have a website, we've got email, and we're always happy to take questions and answer them. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love.